Wanted to start off the show by thanking the newest Patreon supporters, Melissa, Dan, Olva, Ron, Chris, Tom, Lance, Mark, Garrett, Sean, Cecilia, Scott, Chris, Tara, and Jeremy. And then I wanted to go back all the way. Very first supporter is James, Mia, Rob, Melanie, Susan, Jessica, Pally, Nathan, Marcy, John, Tim. So all you guys, I truly appreciate it. Thank you to Hammer Nutrition, Sufferfest Beer, and Destination Trail, and our, our newest sponsor, Exoskin. I'll be wearing those socks during Moab. If you want to try out Exoskin, feel free to use my promo code. They've given us a, a very generous promo code for 20% off. Just use T, the number 4U20, T4U20. You'll save 20% off. And I am going to also be using their calf sleeves and the Exoskin base layer. They're super high-tech materials. They're incredibly comfortable. And I've tested them thoroughly, and I'm, I'm excited to be able to recommend them and use them myself. So definitely check that out. So today we have a really fun episode, and again, we're 200-mile focused for some reason, maybe because Moab's coming up. It's an abbreviated episode, and it's coming out a little early, but the end of this week, I mean, the race starts Friday, so I'll give you just a real quick um, kind of race brief before uh, we get the episode started. So... Uh, going into Moab 240 if you're not aware already um, 240 miles it's incredibly long distance and I'm I try to like cut it up into like running aid station aid station but a lot of these aid stations are spaced out 15 to 20 miles apart so it's like it's uh, each aid station the aid stations essentially like a half marathon or a marathon in itself um, so you can't break it down into as small of sections that you'd normally be able to break a 50 miler down into or a hundred K or a hundred miler. But I go into the race humble and grateful. I mean, I'm humbled again, this distance and planning to respect it the very best I can and run a reasonable pace. I have pacers out there and I need to, you know, show them the respect of a proper pace so I don't, you know, have a major blow up um, since they're taking all this time. So, big thank you to my crew and pacers, Dave, Ethan, Dan, and Nathan. Um, I'm just truly grateful for the outpouring of support. I've gotten tons of messages. They've been, you know, very uplifting I think people have generally just been more excited to follow along for the Moab 240 than probably any race I've ever done, which is pretty surprising. And not only people, but companies, and just um, there's a lot of a lot of buzz around this race. And I mean, I guess I get it. I'm very excited myself. Just the sheer amount of distance, like even within our crazy ultra world, you know, 50k is a long race. Um, and we tend to forget that. So 50Ks, 50 milers, those are crazy distances. And I can remember just two years ago driving 50 miles to my 50 miler and just having like an outer body experience. So yeah, this is kind of a 
this is an outlier within the ultra running world so we'll see how it goes and you know i'm i'm humble and grateful going into this race i'm grateful i mean i haven't shared this publicly yet um i shared it privately maybe with maybe with the patreon supporters but our newborn had some like serious health scares uh in the past two weeks and yeah i there was a 24-hour period where uh my wife and i were kind of in freak out mode and uh you know having it happen two weeks prior i think might be influencing kind of my approach into moab and we've received news everything's fine but yeah it's a scary reminder how quickly life can change and i'm just you know thankful for what i have today so i'm fortunate to be hitting the start line of the 240 mile race and feeling healthy feeling confident and again i have an all-star crew and pacer team with me so i'm it's added confidence, uh, which you you truly uh, you can't go into this race with a single negative thought. It's just too long. So I want to finish this race like as bad as I've ever wanted to finish a race. And I'm focused. I'm keen in on two things. They kind of rhyme or start with F. Uh, food and feet. And I've found in 50Ks, 50Milers, 100Ks, if you neglect your food or your feet, you know, it's not going to be the most ideal race. And as the races get longer in distance, your food and feet become ever more important. So maybe throw in some hydration and pacing, but food and feet are going to be like my main, main focus for Moab. So with that, I mean planning to test my limits this week planning to push myself like I've never pushed before and I'm just trying to remind you guys I'm proof that you can change for the better and that you know just three years ago I was I was just like you I get messages like oh you know the the Strava Run Club's having their their training for ultra challenge this week if you haven't heard already and um it's a just stay active all week and if you do seven hours more of activity you're signed up for a random drawing and then we're also throwing down to see who can do the most hours of activity but yeah i got messages like i'm i'm really self-conscious about my mile times and you know i i replied you know check out check out the very first few runs that i did on strava if you haven't already like if you think i'm i'm actually like a was a super fit person and this has all been like a joke check out my first few strava runs like we're talking six 16 minute 15 minute 14 minute miles at best in bright like and so you know it was a very humble start but that's okay and i learned quickly like heart rate training's definitely a great way to build a base and that if i want to not get injured i have to watch what i eat and develop that cardio base level of fitness so yes i've ramped fairly quickly over three years but um i started you know i would say start at the bottom 
uh, probably like a lot of us in the middle of the pack. So I'm just thankful to be a part of the community, thankful to have found the sport. And uh, yeah, again, go after your dream race. It's possible. You can actually do this. So I'll, I'll have a tracking link on all my social media outlets. So I'm bib number three. You got to choose your own bib number. No one wanted three except for me. And uh, I chose three just as a reminder, like, because you do have to say your bib number out loud a lot of times for aid stations in and out. So I want it to be a humble reminder, like, you've only been doing this for three years. Like, don't do anything stupid. You're not you're not competitive essentially like i am middle of the pack at best and uh this will be a totally different experience so i'm excited to share it with you as much as possible but yeah again the links are on social media all my social media outlets just click on it it starts friday morning at 7 a.m and if i have a good race i will finish on monday so yeah if you're working check it out on friday right at the beginning of work go home for the weekend and then at the end of the day, <laughs> on your uh, workday on Monday, check and see if there's any updates. But yeah, you have a GPS spot tracker, so that's how that website updates. And I don't know if we'll have cell phone coverage. If there is coverage, I'll try to do an update or, or something on my uh, Instagram. So as always, you know, thank you guys for the support. It means a lot. And it's awesome that um, you guys are able to draw inspiration and... Again, I'm just humble and and thankful to be out there this week. And, you know, thank you, everyone, for helping make this possible. And thank you, big thank you, obviously, to my wife, my family. Thank you to the sponsors and uh, happy training. Hopefully we'll have a fun race recap next week. Thanks, guys. Welcome to Training for Ultra, the podcast. Welcome to episode 62 of the Training for Ultra podcast. My name's Rob. I also go by Training for Ultra. And we have a fun episode. We're keeping it simple. We have one interview, Dion Leonard. He is a New York Times bestselling author of Finding Gobi, which is a really cool ultra-running story about... Yeah, I'm not going to tell you the story. Um, but Dion's an excellent, excellent runner. Um, he's His specialty is stage races and a lot of the longer races. And Destination Trail puts on a triple crown of 200, so... The Bigfoot 200, the Tahoe 200, and the Moab 240 is seen as the triple, which Dion's going after. He's currently in third place after Bigfoot and Tahoe. We discuss both those races and sort of his pre-race thoughts into Moab, but if he has a good race and he's a really strong desert runner, you know, there's potential he could either win the triple or, you know, come and runner up or he'll definitely be on the podium you know if he has a reasonable race so fun definitely a fun guy to talk to his wife lucia interviewed me um in chamonix and you know 
incredibly nice uh, ultra running couple definitely a big part of the ultra running community and it was an honor to have him on the show if you are interested actually in pacing Dion for the last 20-25 miles of Moab 240 reach out as quickly as possible he is looking for I think one last pacer and so since he lives in Chamonix he doesn't have you know, a huge network in Colorado, Utah, California, wherever you guys are. Um, but reach out to him. I think his social media is uh, Finding Gobi. So, or you can reach out to me if you're interested. I'll I'll just forward it on to him. But he's looking for one last pacer. But with that, let's um let's get into the episode. Enjoy, guys. I'm joined here by Dion Leonard. He runs for WA. And he's also a New York Times bestselling author of Finding Gobi. Dion, thanks for joining me. Uh, thanks so much for having me on the show. Appreciate it. So it's interesting. I, I spoke to Lucia, your wife, when I was in Chamonix because she started her own podcast. And then I'm. it's amazing because we don't have a huge amount of friends in common. But you're doing all these just crazy ultras. So... Um, it's nice to, you know, finally get some time to speak with you and this is not Dion's first interview, that's for sure. Um, but we are going to focus in on his ultra running and maybe a little bit less on the Finding Gobi story just because, you know, if you want to hear a lot more on it, you can pick up the book and then there have been a lot of interviews on it. So Dion, when did you get into these extreme ultra running events i was back in 2013 i started running actually you know for the first time if you like and uh, i had always kind of been battling a little bit of weight and a little bit of um uh i guess you know drinking has been uh, sort of drinking and food have been sort of the two things that i sort of have vices for if you like so in 2013 i wanted to make a shift away from that and uh, i decided to uh, start taking up running then but um, it literally started with a half marathon and moved on from there um, in the same year I actually completed completed a 250 kilometer race in the Kalahari Desert in South Africa and uh, I ended up coming six at that race and uh, my training wasn't perfect for it but people started to say to me perhaps you should uh, try a little harder and put some effort in and see what you can really achieve <laughs> yeah almost podium and like you're not even trying um, that's funny and so what, what race was that, and um, how did you modify your training? A little bit of this is in the book, too, but um, I think it's worthwhile to lay the foundation and kind of get perspective on your ultra running. Yeah, the Kalahari Extreme Marathon is a 250-kilometer. It's a six-stage, seven-day race. Uh, it's a beautiful race in the sort of northern part of um, South Africa, which uh, is separated by the Namibian River or the Orange River, which separates it to Namibia. And it's an incredible area. It's very hot. It's very desolate. And uh, it's it's one of those sort of a unique experiences that you can only go and do with the race. So um, I bought my wife a book for Christmas the previous year, and uh, it was one of these extreme challenges books because she'd been running a little bit longer than I had, and she'd been wanting to do a lot more of these races previously. And uh, I said to her jokingly, whatever page you open up to, uh, that race or event will go and do. And it just so happened to be the Kalahari race. So (laughs) 
Um, I was obviously then very nervous and very worried about how I could even run 25 kilometers, let alone 250. So things started to have to progress pretty quickly from there. Um, I, at the time, I, I was just going to say I was impressed that you stuck with that one. As I was, I was reading through that section, I was just like, he's going to probably change pages and like they're going to, you know, some somewhere else in the world because that, that one's pretty dang extreme. And you like stuck with it. I think was it was Lucia like waiting for you to like kind of give in and change it up? Yeah, I tried every excuse in the book to try and get out of it to begin with. But you did. Uh, okay. She, okay. Yeah, okay. she was she like think, she was she was chomping at the bit. She wanted to. Uh, she signed up straight away. Both of us, <laughs> and uh, there was no turning back. Um, but. It was one of those moments that actually, in hindsight, was one of the best things that ever happened to both of us too. And it, it, it certainly changed our life. That we, we like to say that race has really changed our life. Um, but it was it was something that would be require a lot of training and a lot of effort. And uh, living in Manchester at the time in the UK, there isn't a lot of mountains. There isn't a lot of heat there. Um, it was very difficult to actually motivate yourself running along up and down the canal for a race that you knew that was going to be completely different. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and so you fast forward a little bit, you know, even beyond um, a lot of these really big accomplishments. Like, I, it's hard to overlook them, but I do want to fast forward a little bit into 2000, like late 17 and 18, just because there hasn't been, um, you know, much talk on it. And it seems like you've kind of you've shifted gears a little bit from a lot of these stage races. Am I missing um, some of the stage races that you may have done in the beginning of this year or late last year? And then I want to talk like Hurt 100 and and obviously the Triple Crown of 200s. I think things, you know, took a real different sort of turn of events after the, the Finding Gobi episode in 2016. And, and that was really, that was my last stage race in the Gobi Desert. And that was back in, uh, as I say, June 2016. And, and really the whole story with Gobi, I didn't get back into the UK until January with Gobi. So there was six months there of my life sort of that had changed completely. And then arriving back in 2017, I then was fully aware of, like writing the book and then having to release the book globally and uh, going on tour in the US and Canada and the UK and Europe as well. So uh, running sort of took a little bit of a back burner and uh, I was supposed to go back to Marathon de Sable for the third time again, but I didn't. And uh, uh, just, I think, you know, life just sort of took a different path for a little while. And as much as I wanted to go out running and to do this, some massive events, it just wasn't sort of connecting. So, um, the back end of 2017 was really the first time that I could go back to the Kalahari race again. Um, and I actually went there and I won, I won that race um, in 2017 in the October. And then in the November, I completed the Marathon de Sable in Peru. And I went out to that race, which was the first official race that had been held outside of Morocco for Marathon de Sable and uh, another 250-kilometer race. And I wanted to go there and, you know, compete up in the top 10, uh, especially after the Kalahari win just a month before. But um, my body wasn't having it. And uh, unfortunately, I was very sick for the week and I managed to uh, finish the race in, I think, 21st position. But um, 
yeah, it was, it was one hell of a week, which kind of put me off some training for the December and January of 2018. Okay. That makes sense. And then, I mean, again, you like these real easy ultras. Um, you're a sick man, just like myself. You like the hard, the harder ones and you're getting, uh, you're getting into a whole different realm of ultra running, which I've sort of explored recently in some of these podcasts, but Hurt 100, I've heard, is just pretty intense. There's no, like, easy footsteps there. Um, what made you decide that one of, of all the uh, 100-milers in the States? That's a good question because uh, th- there wasn't really a specific plan or, or purpose to it except I've always loved the name Hurt 100 and I've always – love following that race and and uh seeing videos of it on youtube etc and just it, it's something that just sort of encapsulated my sort of vision for where i wanted to go running in hawaii and a good reason to go to hawaii as well and uh yeah i think i, I knew fully what i was expecting to the race to be and how difficult it was and um you know having the chance to get out there was an incredibly uh, lucky experience and it was it was brutal. It was that difficult race. Again, I wasn't in specifically great condition for the race, but I wanted to just enjoy the experience as much as possible as you can with five laps of pain around that island. But <laughs> so it it lived up to its name. Hurt one hundred. It, it hurt a lot. It, it's, it, it certainly did, and um, I was very fortunate that my wife was there for me to uh, help crew me and then also to pace me on the last lap as well because the first couple of laps I did quite well, which is pretty standard for most people. You get in two or three laps quite nicely and things unravel. Um, I don't think I could have done the, the fifth lap without her being there and supporting me and uh, guiding me through that last lap and pushing me on. And It was probably you know, it, it was the most beautiful sort of shared experience ever that we've had at a race because the medal's just as much as hers as it is mine so it was it was an awesome experience and uh, you know the strange thing about it is we got back and uh, she's applied and she's been accepted into the race for next year so she knows fully well what uh, she's in for but I have to now go and pace her so that's, that's awesome. gonna be yeah and another shared experience I'll, I'll obviously stay in touch and have Lucia on the show um and so the triple crown of 200s i mean first of all where did you even hear about this because it is sort of localized on the west coast of the u.s and i mean obviously joe rogan blew the door open and millions of people heard of it from that show i mean how did you hear about the triple crown and then i mean the crazier step is how did you you know convince yourself to sign up for it yeah i i hadn't heard about it through joe or any of the podcasts and all of the videos and things that i watch now and i could see there's loads of great press for the for the series but i was i was after heard i was looking for something to um to sort of fill a fill a role that was going to be a huge challenge but i wanted it to be in the states and there's a couple of other races there that i would need I needed to have, you know, the opportunity to go into the ballot or there was other sort of things outstanding that I probably wasn't going to be selected for. And I looked at the – I then started to look into what other races were out there and what other races were bigger than 100 or bigger than the Badwater 135s, et cetera. And 
yeah, lo and behold, I stumbled across these 200s and uh, I started to have some conversations with some of the um, some of the people around me and we started to talk about whether we could uh, we could do the series and whether I could actually, um, at one stage it was CBS were actually going to come out and do some filming for the race series with me. Uh, so that my first conversations with Candice, the race director, were about me coming out to do this. Scoby was going to come and stay in a camper van and Lucia was going to come as well. And it was going to be a bit of a, a bit of a journey as a family, if you like. And yeah, that, that, that was sort of the first conversations I then had with Candice to, uh, to come and do the series. And um, it, was, it was one of those moments actually where you sort of register and you realize, oh my goodness, what actually have I signed up for? Because then it really sunk in. <laughs> Everything had gone really quickly up to this point. Yeah, it's a great idea and we're going to do this uh, CBS TV coverage. And um, yeah, the next thing I was signed up and I was like, wow, I better start getting ready for this. 640 miles or 650 miles of running that's uh it's intense i mean is do you see the 200 mile the triple as i mean i i'm amazed because you're coming from stage racing so i mean and some obviously some 250k type races but this is a pretty big jump in terms of distance for you am i correct in that and how did you approach, yeah. was it Bigfoot is the first one in the series? That's actually a very fair assumption because I've only done 200 mile races and that Herd 100 as we discussed and Mount Galagong 100 miles in China. So it's not that I've got a background in 100 mile running at all and I don't profess to have, uh, that's for sure. So yeah, the 200s was definitely going to be a huge change up but um Oh, I had a lot going on in the after Hurt 100. I had the UK paperback release of Finding Gobi, and then a lot of languages started to come out as well in Italy and Germany and Holland. So I spent a lot of time on the road with the, with the book release and doing lots of PR, etc. And we were moving from Edinburgh in the UK where we were to Chamonix in France, and um, a lot happened. And suddenly I realised that there was there was six weeks time for me from the moment we moved to Chamonix to get fit for Bigfoot. And I was probably about seven kilos overweight as to where I am today. And I needed to get out into the mountains. And uh, I really had to work my ass off for those six to seven weeks to to try and build up the mileage and to, to try and gain some elevation and altitude training as well. So my preparation was, was really pretty dire before Bigfoot. That's interesting. And the irony is you you moved to Chamonix, but you're traveling so much you're never you're never in Chamonix. Um, that must be sort of torturous, actually. Um. <laughs> it is one of the one of the main reasons we've also moved here, besides the training aspect to improve that part of uh, things, is also I'm I'm pretty scared of heights. So I knew going into Bigfoot that there was going to be some issues around that, and it was it was a major problem for me and concern and. Um, you know, I needed to spend as much time as I could up high here and start trying to cross some traverses and some things that I might expect in Bigfoot. So some days actually the training wasn't great in terms of physically, but mentally I was overcoming some fears and objections that I had uh, in my own you know, mind. So yeah, it was, I, I was very, very nervous getting on the start line at Bigfoot. I was very under overwhelmed with uh, how, how many people were there and how many people looked and uh, did know what they were doing and had previous experience, which 
you know, is, is something mentally I normally um, put into another side and, and forget about because I'm very confident and strong in my own training. But uh, this was a this was a unique experience for me, and uh, in a way, it really helped me get to the finish line, not not worrying about the people ahead of me. So, and I love the part of finding Gobi. I, I love the everything about Gobi, obviously, but the description of how you start races is just like crystal clear. Like I can see it almost as if I had seen a movie or something, which it probably should be a movie at some point. Um, you tucked in a, a, a camping bag like minutes before the race start, like with your can of, I think it was beans, right? Cold beans yeah. and a spoon <laughs> and just getting looks from competitors like what the heck that, what the heck is that guy doing? Do you still do that? Is that how you approach Tahoe or um, Bigfoot? I still approach Bigfoot exactly the same way with that sort of clinical army training, and I have no army training, but um, <laughs> for some reason it's it, it's it's sort of that process and putting everything in place beforehand and knowing absolutely everything um, works for me, and um, I'm still adaptable throughout the race because, of course, things always go wrong. But but coming through Bigfoot and uh, understanding all of the aspects to complete the 200 miles, of course, then gave me a better foresight into Tahoe. Yeah. And I was I was incredibly proud and happy to finish Bigfoot to begin with, and then to cross some of the, the you know to go over some of the mountain passes and the out and backs that we had to do, which were challenging for me. And and to finish 17th was kind of was mind blowing. And um, you know I did pretty much the majority of the race on my own. Someone kindly offered to pace me through the, the last section of the race, the last 20 miles, if you like, which which was a huge help. But other than that, I was on my own, and uh, it was the incredible sort of checkpoint people and volunteers that, um, that made it all possible. Let's hear just a few more details on Bigfoot. And that's part of the benefit of having this podcast is, you know, a lot of um, – you know, news anchors and whatnot have the five minute soundbite and they can't dig into any of the details. And here we have basically as much time as you have. Um, did you do a pre-race meal and tell me about like, you know, the first half of Bigfoot and just in terms of like, did you have a sleep plan? Cause sleep plans with 200 milers are I don't know. It's a whole different realm. And just tell me how you were feeling for the first half of the race and just any other like important details on Bigfoot that maybe, um, I know you'd like to share. Sure. And I think one of the major concerns with Bigfoot for me and not having the, the crew specifically was needing to get the bus from the, uh, from the, the high school out to the start of the race near Randall, which is, you know, getting on one of the traditional American school buses and driving for, I think, an hour and a half or two hours very early in the morning. I think we caught that bus at like five in the morning or six in the morning for this nine o'clock start. Um, so you're going to bed, you're knowing that you're having to get up very early to get on the bus and uh, to then try and think how you're going to eat, what you're going to eat at that time of the morning because obviously there's no hotel food open. Um, I actually had... Uh, Luckily enough, there's a coffee shop in Packwood that had some cheese and bacon scones made up the day before, and uh, I had a couple of those and a huge French pastry, um, which is completely probably not the right food, but uh, 
it's sometimes how I roll as well is um, is just eating what I feel comfortable with and I'm happy with. And I knew that there was going to be plenty of food throughout the day. So I, I wasn't really that worried about eating properly, if you like. Um, the, the bus trip was kind of funny because everyone's got this sort of nervous anticipation and, and there's a little bit of chatter and then everyone sort of starts bricking themselves and starts thinking about how horrible the next 200 miles could be and this, the silence starts to take over the bus. So <laughs> That's been my experience on those bus rides, like eerie silence. Um, yeah. That's funny. It, it, it's sort of getting to the to the start really sort of – I mean, it, it, it took an hour and a half, two hours, as I said, in the bus, and you start to see along the way where you're going and some of the pink markers that you're following throughout the race, and you, you start to really put it into perspective is, wow, this is a hell of a long way. What, what have I done? So, um, you know, starting the race, I, uh, I opted for the moving drop bags throughout. I had a limited supply of things with, with myself. I had uh, just a, just a 500 mils of two, two 500 mils of water with me, and uh, a couple of gels and uh, a jacket if it got got cold up in the mountains and um, so I was running pretty light I was using sticks for the first time uh, using poles and I really took it very very lightly early on and I, I wanted to be sort of mid-pack mid to back pack and not push too far throughout the the first sort of mountain part if you like because it was quite exposed and it was very hot as well and I just wanted to make sure I was comfortable with where I was sort of to get through give myself some confidence and then try and push on through the evening isn't, and, it, uh, isn't it comfortable in the middle of the pack don't you like it there <laughs> <laughs> actually it's very good the band is great and uh it's it's cool to hang out with some incredible people back there that have done so many races around the world and um you, you can learn a lot from those guys as well and you know during my stage races i'm you know, competitively at the front, and I often think that the guys at the back have it a hell of a lot harder because they're out there for longer and they, they're getting the same amount of water that's, you know, given to each of the runners at a stage race. Um, but, yeah, they, they have a pretty cool time on the 200s. I think they get back and they relax at each of the sleep stations and, and uh, eat all the food they can. And uh, But by the time we got into the first evening, I was pretty, you know, pretty keen to push on, and, and that was my plan then to sort of start moving and, start picking up the pace and uh, I had to climb the, the biggest climb of the uh, of the race was actually uh, on the first evening and it was probably the one that um, the name escapes me of where we were but the the mountain pass was going to be one of the ones that actually had worried me the most and uh, I blitzed it I nailed that 20 mile section and uh, I was picking off people picking off people with paces and i knew that things were really starting to pick up and inside my mind i was like okay maybe i can do this nice that's really nice i I mean had you had any like major hiccups until you started you know picking up steam here no everything had gone really well and i'd been hydrating throughout the day perfectly and salt tablets and eating well and uh, i knew that i was positioned to to really charge on and i had no plans to sleep throughout the race um at any point i was going to just take that by play and see how far i could get i knew i could do the 100 miles without any sleep and i think a lot of people try to push through that first night and uh, I wanted to do that, and I wanted to see how far I could get through the, the second day. And I was hoping it would be hot on the second day again because I, I think people had really sh- sort of started to struggle with the heat and um, maybe hadn't hydrated so well. And, th- and that's kind of a strength of mine. So 
Um, unfortunately, it wasn't as hot on day two of the race, but um, I, I was lucky enough to be able to sort of push on and continue on. The only real problems that started to take off in day two were the amount of river crossings. And as much as I could change my socks at aid stations, my feet started to get battered. And into the evening of day two, it rained a little as well. And uh, there were streams running down the path that we were climbing up. And it was impossible not to get wet feet. So uh, I, I knew that I was really having some problems underneath, you know, with, with blisters and things that were starting to happen. And and the pain was becoming quite intense that uh, I had to sort of take action and stop at one of the aid stations and start to speak to the medical team. And they were pretty horrified how bad they were, actually. I mean, is this the first race you've done where your feet have gotten that wet? Because um, you, you're an expert desert runner. Um, yeah, had you yeah. done any, any super long distance races with wet feet? I guess Hurt 100 is pretty good training for it, but you're very lucky there that it's 20-mile laps and you've got effectively three stations that you can change your socks at. So, um, you know, you, you can look after your feet a hell of a lot better out there than than you can at uh, a race like Bigfoot. So, I mean, there was one occasion where I had everything changed, socks, bandages. Uh, I'd got a leg massage off someone and uh, – I was ready to go and I left the aid station all pumped up thinking, you know, I can push on for the next 15 to 20 miles and keep ticking off, you know, picking off some people along the way. And about a mile into that uh, section, there was a massive uh, uh, river crossing that had oh, to uh, had to be taken and uh, there was no way around it. And uh, it was just deflating to know that everything that I'd done was a complete waste of time to begin with. And the second thing was that I was probably going to still have another – I don't know how long it was, 15 miles, 16 miles, et cetera, to the next station before I could change socks again. So tell me, how did you – tell me about the finish of Bigfoot 200. And I mean, were you – every 200 interview I do, I have to ask about hallucinations. I'm sort of obligated. I mean, did things get sketchy towards the end of this because you're pushing for I, – I mean, did you sleep at all? The, this is a – over 70 hours of running. Yeah, so I had 10 minutes sleep throughout um, two different um, two different sections, if you like, of sleep. I, I'm one of these people that I just cannot sleep if there's a, an ounce of noise or if something uh, is bothering me or things racing through my mind. And when I'm at a race, I just cannot switch off. And as much as I want to, it's the most frustrating part of, of my brain. But... Um, I tried, I tried trail uh, sleeping, you know, dirt naps, etc., and then I'd start thinking of bears and cougars and swore I'd hear something, and uh, I just, I could not sleep for the life of me. And um, you know, on the the evening of day three, uh, that 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 section where I was lucky enough to have a runner called Brad who uh, who paced me very kindly, uh, that was probably the worst section for me. It was up, we were up very high, and um, there was I was hallucination, hallucinating, and I was also, you know, wobbling around on the path, and uh, it was it was pretty dangerous. And my hallucinations aren't kind of extreme, but I see what I see is people's faces and people I might not have spoken to for years, or people that are celebrities, or I have this weird thing about being seeing through tree leaves and burnt wood and things, people's faces. And, um, yeah, and, and I I love talking to myself during a race and um, I can have these terrible arguments with myself about, you know, not moving quickly enough and it, 
the, the next thing I'll be saying is, yeah, I told you that earlier. And it's like, well, why weren't you listening? And I could have these conversations for, for miles. And uh, I'm just lucky that it's out in the woods and no one can see me because otherwise I'd be locked up. So. Can we confirm? That, can we confirm that Brad was actually a person out there pacing, or no? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I hope he was. Yeah, that is taking it to a new level. So, but it's that for me. It's probably more the conversations that I have with myself, and I I really have to double check with uh, with myself what is going on and uh, what I'm doing, and uh, my mind really goes off into a different tangent. Do you do you ever hallucinate Gobi running with you just because you're so used to? you know, having her down next to you running? That that surprisingly actually happened at Bigfoot, but didn't happen in Tahoe. And uh, I swore I saw her in Bigfoot and I went down to Patter and uh, I was like literally tearing up and it was a pile of leaves. And uh, it, it kind of made me worse then. And uh, I don't speak to my wife or anyone throughout the race. Um, and I don't, you know, have, I just have my phone switched off and, um, I always like that. I don't like the sort of communication aspect of what's going out in the world. And, um, yeah, for the first time, I sort of wanted to reach to my phone and switch it on and say hello because it uh, brought a tear to my eye. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. Um, So how was finishing Bigfoot? And then let's hear about changes you made going into Tahoe. Uh, Finishing Bigfoot was was epic. And um, throughout – that sort of I, I get through that evening section of day three and I know that I can possibly finish under the 9 a.m. time limit that I'd sort of set myself for the Monday morning and um, I was I was hoping that I could do that and uh, I, I really pushed on and tried to make up as much time as possible on the downwards and then the last section is all run on the road into into the high school and unfortunately it wasn't as it it, it didn't sort of – I couldn't make up the time, unfortunately. But um, just running around the, the, the track that you run onto the finish line and just seeing the commitment from all of the staff and the volunteers to be there for all of the runners and uh, people that I didn't know were there and I'd met during the race that, you know, the people that had paced me and other people that had decided to help me and crew me and uh, just wanted to look after me was – it just brought a load of tears to my eyes. And I, I can't remember the last time I actually cried – finishing a race or if I ever have but um yeah I was I was in tears at the end of that and uh, I was pretty broken physically with my feet and um yeah it was it was an awesome experience that says a lot because you've done a lot of intense just crazy stage races and you've done you know just totally epic type ultra running so to be moved after a race like that and for for one of the first times is pretty it says a lot. I love the way I don't know. It, it, it happens. It happens in other races, but I just love the way the U.S. running community always seems to come together and the fun and the, the vibes and uh, the love and the warmth that everyone gives to you. And it doesn't matter who you are and where you are in the field. And um, yeah, for me, I guess that really was important to me and was was helpful to me because I've come a long way to do the race and didn't have anyone there to support me. So. Yeah, it uh, it was definitely one of those moments. I was like, "Wow, this is this is an incredible sport and uh, community we are part of." Yeah, that's amazing. And so, you know, you you gain this new distance experience. Did you modify anything going into Tahoe, or did you just stick to this game plan that seems to keep working for you? I mean, I think. 
I looked at everything that I had and I looked at my equipment and I looked at sort of whether I needed to change certain aspects of food or gels or just because of taste and probably 200 miles or something, you, you suddenly don't feel like you want to eat chocolate crepes or uh, gels or things along the way anymore. You might get sick of the the uh, drink choice, etc. So I, I definitely looked at some of that. I was concerned about the weather in Tahoe perhaps being a little colder as well. So I... Um, I, I changed some of the clothing and equipment that in that respect. In terms of training between races, I stayed out in the US. I uh, crewed my wife at Leadville um, just just three days after Bigfoot had finished. And I did probably 20 miles of training until the start of Tahoe. So I, I like to sort of switch off between. I wanted to take the aspect of switching off, recovering. My feet were a mess, so I had to try, I uh, had no feeling. Um, I still have a lack of feeling from Bigfoot in my feet. Uh, and so the numbness, the blisters were an issue to try and get ready for Tahoe. And that was a big, that was a big concern for me. And how did, um, how did Tahoe go? I mean, I know, I want to say I was even speaking with Lucia in Chamonix. I think we were out at a, a coffee shop right around UTMB CCC time, were you actually running Tahoe at that point? I think that's the timing of it, right? I think it is actually. Um, yeah, I think there might have been a day or two difference there. Yeah, it was. Um, it would have been the first time I'd got to see the stuff here at UTMB as well, and uh, I was disappointed to miss that. But, hey, running around Lake Tahoe and being out there is is pretty epic as well. So yeah. I went into Tahoe pretty confident um, of – you know my own sort of planning and where I wanted to sort of be in in the race and I wanted to sort of push a little bit quicker than what I had at Bigfoot say at the start and uh, I just wanted to be a little bit more consistent with my running than I was at Bigfoot and I'd heard that the trails were a lot more sort of accessible and runnable um, you know the Tahoe Rim Trail etc so not as not as much bushwhacking as what happens at Bigfoot so I was hoping to be able to sort of push that 70 hour barrier and um and and just just see where it would put me overall and again i didn't have any crew or paces so um it was it was it was going to be what it was going to be and um i was i was really on the start line i was confident i was happy i was feeling pretty fresh and then i must have run about 20 meters and then you start a, a, an incline up a snow hill um, a snow slope and the legs just had nothing uh, there was there was no energy in them there was they just felt tired straight away and uh mentally you know i'm i'm prepped i'm ready to go i'm really positive and um i was just looking down at my legs thinking oh my goodness this is going to be a long long race if this doesn't change and and it, it it was just the first part of the race was just really me again sort of mid pack maybe maybe sort of 30 to 50th place um, just trying to get my legs going. And uh, I was incredibly frustrated because the, the temperature was great. It was beautiful warm weather. It was beautiful running conditions. And I just couldn't get moving. And it was starting to affect my negativeness then in terms of mentally. And, um, you know, that's always a dangerous line. Yeah, I, I mean, I got to rewind. So you're, you're 20 meters into a 205-mile race. And you're realizing your legs are dead, essentially. Yeah. I mean, what? How? How do you try to correct that situation? Is there anything that you can do physically 
to modify what you know calories or i mean is this just is this just a mental switch that you have to make you know I, I, that was probably one of the first things i thought was perhaps i should i had a pretty good breakfast and i i, I felt ready to go but i did actually start to have a couple of gels and drink the the energy drink that i had and I just thought, okay, maybe that was the first sort of thing. And in in a stage race, if you're out in the desert and the heat sort of playing with your mind and your body, then that's normally a first indication is, you know, try and eat and drink. And so I, I used those same sort of techniques and, um, you know, the climb up was, was terrible and I could tell I was, you know, back further than I should have been. And uh, I could see Courtney and uh, the guys running off into the distance. And not that I knew that I was going to be anywhere near them, but um, I was kind of deflating and, I just had to sort of keep that positive mind shift and uh, keep trying to to push through as much as I could, and just I really just hoped that um, at some point the legs would switch on. And the first the first climbs are nothing sort of dramatic in terms of um, distance climbed upwards, but um, so that that sort of leveled out, and I got running again, and then we were back down, and we ran then along the the, the lake, and you know you're down on the bitumen then, and even then I was struggling for pace, and uh, I was. I was probably the first time I was really concerned about is it something else? Was it the altitude? And I was fortunate enough to spend some time out in Squaw Valley beforehand. So I I thought I was reasonably acclimatized and um, I didn't think it was that, but I was starting to think, okay, maybe, uh, maybe I should speak to someone at the medical tent at the next state station. And um, I got to the next aid station and I think I was probably 30 miles in and I had some food and uh, – I, I just decided to keep pushing on and I, I started to think about why I was doing the races and, uh, you know, I'm out there trying to raise money for, for animals in need and it was the big the big thing that I planted, the seed planted in my mind was this is why we're here and this is why we're doing it and if we have to start resting and sleeping at checkpoints and it takes the full 105 hours, then that's what it takes and I just kept going and I kept pushing and... I got about 50 miles into the race and uh, I started running with a fellow Australian guy who I'd never met before or didn't, you know, didn't know. And um, we started having some great conversation and banner between each other and the miles started to tick over and, and the legs started to tick over and things started to, to pick up from there. There's so, there's so much in what Dion just explained just for the listeners background. And man, I've, I've only had, my quads feel like they're blown out at mile seven of like a hundred K. So to, to be basically at the start line and to be able to overcome that, you, you know, it's not going to be like the race of your life, but, um, a lot of it's mental, but just for the listeners background for, for your quads feeling horrible, it's either hydration or nutrition, like nine out of 10 times. But for that one out of 10, like Dion saying, you just mentally have to be positive and hope that your body resets over time and be patient. Um, I, I, I think the why I was running was, was super important for that mental aspect you mentioned. You know, if you haven't got the why sorted in your head as to why you're there and why you're doing it, then you're looking for excuses then. And, and I knew yep. people had donated money and I knew there's a lot of people watching and supporting me and, and that was important for me not to not to have to pull out. But, the race was that that whole aspect of those legs and that body just not wanting to run just for 200 miles, 200, 
5.6 or 206.5 miles I had I just could not get into the enjoyment of the running side of things mentally everything was was pretty good but I just didn't enjoy any aspect of the running I could not get moving it was it was incredible um at no point did I run a section that I thought that was that was good I'm back you know I, I want to push on oh gosh that's that's a long event for sure I I have to ask you again about when you thought you saw Gobi and then you wanted to call Lucia, tell me about that point in the race. Where were you? Kind of walk me through that, and then how did you get through it to the finish line? Uh, so that had happened at Bigfoot, and okay, when that was I, Bigfoot. Okay, that was Bigfoot. But you know, my my sort of mind's always thinking of of Gobi and Lucia and our cat Laura as well. And, uh, it was, it was the first time actually that I decided to, to start switching on my phone and I sent her a couple of messages to say, you know, I'm really struggling here and I, I'm not sure how I can switch things on. And I, I remember messaging her saying mentally, everything's great, which is the first battle. And, um, yeah, it was, she was just telling me that, eat, drink, just keep pushing, just keep moving forward and, uh, you know, one foot in front of the other and go back to basics. And uh, so I had a bit more conversation with her and um, I, I did just that and I could see everyone was struggling around me and uh, it was just a battle I think a lot of the Triple Crown people were, were all facing. Yeah. So how, how was the final 25 miles into the finish at Tahoe? I mean – Things must have improved for the second half. I mean, you had to, going from middle of the pack to almost, you know, finding yourself, I don't know, you were you were up there, um, almost podium. Uh, things had to have either turned around in terms of speed or, or what, you know, walk me through those last 30, 25 miles into the finish. Yeah, at the 100-mile mark, my bag actually broke and the, the straps broke on it and I didn't have another bag there. And I was – at that point, I actually asked, you know, how many customers have you had today already in the in the aid station? And I think he said 15 or 16. And I was I was, I was kind of shocked actually that, that, you know, I was up around that mark, if you like. And then I was, of course, a little bit annoyed because my bag had broken. And it was that stage I thought – I'm going to try and have a little sleep and a, a nice young guy called Ken who was pacing, crewing someone else, just, he said to me, I'll try and fix your bag for me and uh, I went off and had a, tried to have a sleep and I, I couldn't I got back up and he said, I've, I fixed your bag enough for you to, to run with it, um, try and get another one if you can and um, uh, I switched on my phone to tell my wife what had been going on and she had just coincidentally texted me to say my friend who was doing the Triple Crown uh, had pulled out because of altitude uh, problems earlier on so I was like oh my goodness his bad luck could be my good luck and can he get my you know can he bring a bag to me and help me out and um, this guy he uh, you know he was suffering from his own DNF and his his altitude sickness and he came out and uh, he drove out and he met me along the way and handed off the bag to me and gave me a leg massage and uh, you know tried to give me some some positive words of encouragement and, and said to me come on you, you're doing really well like push on here and uh, I'll see you at the next aid station and uh, yeah he was there for me and uh, looked after me and I managed to actually sleep in his car at the aid station for for 10 or 15 minutes which was the first time I'd slept and uh, I got back up and I was ready to sort of rock and roll if you like and 
I started to push on and I started to, to overtake people and I, I worked my way up to, to that sort of top 10 and uh, he joined me for the last seven miles from the, from the last aid station to the finish and uh, I was in, I just, just got into ninth place and, uh, you know, surprisingly enough, the legs started to feel good and knew it was all over and I, I absolutely <laughs> hammered it home. So I was, I was thrilled to, to finish that race in ninth, but there was no tears. There was no enjoyment. There was no smile on my face, if you like. It was, it was completely the opposite of Bigfoot, which, um, which I still cannot understand mentally or physically where I was at with, with that whole race. It, uh, I hope it doesn't happen for Mo. I put it that way. That's amazing. They, you're like start feeling good for mile two hundred or whatever. Like great, um, and that's that's a huge accomplishment. Top ten at that race because there that was as far as stacked fields. Uh, you know, at a two hundred miler, there were some really really great runners, and um, to come back from essentially having dead quads at at under mile one to just stick with it and be patient it shows a lot of uh mental strength to get through that so let's talk um just real briefly about moab some gear and i appreciate all the time you're giving me um how are you feeling going into moab this is tagging on a at least a 50k onto you know this 200 mile distance that you've done before i mean how are you mentally feeling going into Moab just understanding the distance now better I've been lucky enough to come home after uh, Tahoe to have a rest at home and to catch up with my wife and you know the cat and the dog and and just to chill out in my own environment and um, you know because I'd been out in the states for seven eight weeks with a with the first two races and doing some PR and stuff as well so it was nice to just come back and forget about running and forget about racing and uh, I've been out on the mountain bike quite a bit and we've still got some glorious summer weather here so uh, I've had a few beers and some good food and you know just just really tried to refresh mentally and um, for me that's that's the big thing and going into Moab I've probably done 20 20 miles 30 miles of running Um, but I'm I'm gonna just do exactly what I've seems to work for me and just sort of try and nail everything on and uh, try and get there in, in the, the best case that I can and have everything organized and set out for the race ahead. And I'm lucky enough this time to have uh, someone who's kindly crewed and someone who's pacing me as well. And and these two people, I don't know them at all. And uh, again, it's just incredible that they've offered their services uh, to help me achieve something which again, just, you know, blows me away. And, and that'll push me through those last 40 miles that you mentioned that um, is going to be an awful, awful thing to think of when you hit 200 miles that you've still got a lot to do. But uh, having people sacrifice things for me is uh, is going to be a huge mental boost as well. I totally agree. I, I was telling my crew that privately. I was like having, you know, someone take their day to be out there or several days like I need to pace properly so I can make it out, you know, so Dan can pace me because he's taken, you know, a day off of work or whatever. So the least I can do is properly pace to show up for Dan. Um, I mean, I think it's I think it's incredible that um, you know you you get that support from people you don't know, and um, I'm very 
very lucky and it'll, it'll be interesting to see whether that makes any difference to uh, my preparation uh, well not my preparation but in terms of how I go throughout the race and whether I can push on a little bit harder or or whether I just stick with you know my plans as to what's happened at Bigfoot and Tahoe and I've been successful with that so I've got a few things to sort of work out uh, over the next week or two as to how I want to attack it but I would have loved Moab to have been the first race of the series because it suits me the best, but uh, unfortunately it's the last and it's probably yeah. the last that legs want to run. So, Well, make sure to message me if you need anything last minute um, because I'll be out there and, uh, yeah, I'd be happy to help in any way just knowing uh, how far away you are from home. So I'm I'm excited to see how this race unfolds for you. Um, because you have done so well and, and had just, it seems like you've had mediocre races for the first two, but you're still what third overall for the, the triple crown. Yeah, that's all still to play for. And, uh, there's a cool guy called Walt in first, who's a couple of hours ahead of me. And, uh, I think that someone's in second is an hour ahead. So it's, it's really all to play for. I mean, that's, that's really nothing over the 240 miles. So that's definitely in the back of my mind as well as to, to try and at least stay in third position. But uh, if I can move up the rankings there as well. So I've, I've had the most incredible experience with this race series and uh, it's, you know, a huge race still to come. But already my mind's moving forward is to how do you top this? I mean, <laughs> that, that's I, I still don't know if that's possible. I've gotten messages about running across America. I mean, that's like the next step after these. Um, just throwing it out there as an idea. Um, so, I mean, just in terms of like one or two last questions on Moab, are you going for the win for the Triple Crown or is this such a long race you're just going to try to have a good Moab and see where it falls out because that's essentially all you can do. But you're also, just having read your book, I know how competitive you are. Um, like it, when you're at the start line, are you trying to win this event? Uh, definitely not trying to win the, the overall race, but, uh, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to be, um, I've seen some times of people that I respect from previous years and, uh, I'd like to definitely be, you know, that sort of early 70 hours is where I'd like to be, um, if not a little quicker, but. I think the thing with the race is I'm just going to have to run my own race and uh, and take it as it comes and do the best that I can. And then whatever it is at the end, it, it is at the end. But you can definitely be uh, be sure in my mind every minute I'll be thinking of, you know, who's ahead of me in terms of triple crown placings and uh, and what I need to do to, to keep going. That'll, that'll drive me, that's for sure. But um, look, like any of these things, it'll be just uh, – just amazing and an epic achievement to finish this as well yeah that's i'm really really trying to to have that mind frame for myself and i don't know if i subconsciously wanted to race this after talking to to lucia so maybe i can thank her for this whole um crazy adventure she seems to get us in trouble here um <laughs> definitely does what what is because you start your races conservatively you you i assume you're intentionally just pacing yourself for the duration of the race what is middle of the pack 
pacing at a 200 and what is pacing at the front of the pack in terms of like minutes per mile i'm assuming middle of the packs like a 12 to 15 minute pace at the start i don't i don't know i'm clueless i was i would have said between 12 and 15 and um you know if you can keep that sort of 10 to 12 pace up throughout then you're doing very well and uh, one of the benefits that i have is i don't have that sleep um you know time that's eating into the overall i will hopefully won't have the feed issues here at at, um, at Moab, which I did have at Tahoe in terms of I took a bit of care of them there to make sure I was right for Moab, but I'm definitely going to push through that here and, and forget about that a little bit less. But I think there, there's times when I was running at Bigfoot and uh, where I was running eight-minute miles, and um, you know it's incredible to think you might be 100 miles in and you're still capable of running a decent pace. And um, so, yeah, it's... Uh, it's something that I need to sort of control as well. And if I can do, you know, 12 to 15 minute miles, then I think I'll be relatively happy with that early on. And then I think it's reasonably runnable early on from what I can tell. So maybe there's an option there to sort of push it up a little, but I don't want to get caught with guys that I know are only there for Moab and that they're, they're fresh and they're going to go for the the race win. And um, I, I like to sort of stick back a little bit from, from all of that as well. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to be running with me at the beginning, you know. <laughs> <laughs> there is there is nothing better than picking off people at the the back of a race, and I think we all get a bit of a buzz out of that. And um, you know, for me, if I can switch on at a hundred miles and then start picking off and making my way up into the top twenty, then I'm in a pretty good place. <laughs> pick pick people off for a hundred and forty miles. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, last race related question. I mean. Are you prepared for the cold at night? Because there's stretches where last year the aid station foods were like frozen solid. Um, are you prepared for desert running, but then at night potentially, you know, when altitude, when we get above 10,000 feet, it, it gets really cold. Have you done those super cold type races? Uh, no is the answer to the last part of the question is no I haven't done a lot of cold races I'm not great in the cold but I'm taking uh, two different bags this this time obviously the, the bag that broke's not coming but uh, I've got a wire bag which is uh, which actually is an old bag that I've used in the stage races before which is a little big to what I'd like it's a 20 litre bag and I have a uh, 12 litre bag as well but I want to take the bigger bag throughout the evening to have you know, all of that warm gear that you talk about, and I'll be definitely taking a sort of feather down sort of jacket as well, a warm down jacket if you like. Uh, I'll have the rain jackets and uh, rain pants, etc., as well, just in case to, to try and keep warm throughout and gloves and beanie, etc. So, and then hopefully I can switch during the day to the lighter bag or some handhelds and um, and run a bit lighter and, and make up for it there. Well, I'm excited. Yeah. I'm excited for you. I, I think. Yeah. It is a concern. The, the cold is definitely a concern, and I'm not uh, not taking that lightly at all. I I think Moab plays into your strengths. Just having you know read what what races you've done well at in the in the past, and I'm sure you can figure out the cold sections and and the triple crown is it's right there. Um, you know, if you do have a good race, because I know the the first two of the series have been pretty average for you. So if you have a good race, man. 
Um, just maybe last five minutes here, quicker questions. I always start off with toe socks or no toe socks? Uh, no toe socks. Okay, so that was a weird question for you. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I have to ask. And what what type of shoes do you wear? Uh, that's a very good question. I'm not uh, aligned to any brand at the moment, but um, I have a mixture of Ciccone and uh, Ultra. Nice. Just just depending on the environment. And uh, I've actually moved to the Ultra a little bit throughout this series because of feet issues and, uh, you know, that flat-footed shoe that they have just seems to work for me. But then uh, I've had some support from Ciccone in the past and I wear their, their shoes as well. Do you like um, any compression gear of any sort, or do you stay away from that? No, don't believe in that at all. Okay. And what type of vest do you typically wear? Uh, Wild vest. Uh, so it's a French ultra company. Mainly, they do a lot of ultra stuff, but I've used uh, their gear for over five years now. And, uh, yeah, it's all desert-specific stuff, and they've moved into ultra running, so I, I use all of their gear. Yeah, they're they're pretty hardcore into like the stage races, and you see a lot of their stuff um, at those those epic events. So, in terms of water bottles, do you wear hard water bottles, soft water bottles, and how do those feel on your rib cage and stage events and two hundred milers? Yeah, so one of the bags I'll have soft flasks and the ability to transfer the bladder that I do have with me. So I'll have the two liter bladder probably. In you know, I had the bag and the soft flask are just the, the 500 mil variety and I'll have energy drinks in the soft flasks and then uh, water in the, the bladder. But um, in the 20 liter wild bag that I'll have, I'll actually have those harder um, drink bottles that we use in the desert. And again, I'll probably use energy drink in those and in the back, they are 750s and then in the, the back I'll have the bladder with the water. Nice. And do you, so do you use any liquid calories or you aid station foods and gels and water essentially? I'm using some of the energy drink that they provide at the race, but um, I also have my own uh, version as well. So I I do use it and I think it's something that's really grown on me. Uh, I use it a lot at Hurt and uh, I found it very effective when, when you can't get the food in. And traditionally before that, it's not something that I can take to a desert race because it's it's reasonably heavy for calories and there's, there's probably better options out there that I've used before, but now I'm uh, sort of leaning towards it. And of course in this race, you can have your drop bag. So it doesn't matter. Do you still eat beans and Frank's cold before the start of races? <laughs> well, but luckily enough for Tahoe and hopefully for Moab and I'm, I'm staying next to the, to the start line if you like, so I can have that hot this time and, uh, <laughs> And enjoy a nice breakfast before you get out there. But, you know, the food that um, Candice and her team put on is, uh, is incredible and burritos, quesadillas and uh, hamburgers. And you, you definitely – you're living the dream out there eating well. So you, you don't starve, which is great. And uh, it makes a difference from the stage races where I have to take, you know, the lightest dehydrated horrible food. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. And so do you wear a watch of any sort? Do you actually keep track of your mileage while you're out during these races or no, no watch? Um, I have a watch for time and if I'm lost throughout and uh, sometimes there's been one or two occasions where I've used the, the Gaia app and uh, and it's the, the absolutely fantastic bit of kit to have for, you know, having the route on uh, on there to be able to double check. But there's been one or two times where I've just needed to double check it and I've had the, the route on the watch as well. So 
but I don't record anything, uh, timings or pace or anything. So um, if I can help it, um, I try not to look at it. And then last question, do you wear a clear lens during the nighttime? Because it's something I'm uh, likely going to do during Moab. During your races, do you wear a clear type like eye protection during the nighttime? No, but it'll be interesting to see whether it stops the hallucinations or makes them even worse. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's yeah. So um, no, I don't. I don't have the uh, have the need for that, but um, you know I think that's something that could play into your your benefit as well because it's obviously sandy and uh, those conditions you don't want to get too much stuff in your eyes either. So, and I do have one last kind of gear related question. I skipped over caffeine. How much caffeine will you take during these longer events? So I I've had to give up caffeine for numerous reasons, uh, and oh, that's right. Yeah, so I've had a few issues with it at races and, and training and things because I've probably been drinking too much of it. So over the last, well, since uh, six weeks before Bigfoot, I actually transferred to sort of decaffeinated coffee. And, and uh, now it's only during the race, I think at Bigfoot and Tahoe, I had a cup of coffee with probably 20 to 30 miles to go. And uh, oh my goodness, I've, uh, I've probably not run so quick in all my life. It's been incredible. So I think coming off the caffeine before the race has been a real big uh, hit for me and uh, and you're just using it. I mean, I do drink their, their provided um, energy drink, which may have some caffeine in it as well, but um, it's very limited. You're like the antithesis of Kyle Curtin. If you listen to that episode, I think he had, I don't know, 10 five-hour energy drinks for Tahoe. <laughs> um, what's the biggest difference between a stage race and a 200-miler? Uh, the clock doesn't stop, so you've got to be very conscious about everything you do. There's no recovery period. There's no time to just chill out and relax And uh, if you want to be competing or, or at the front. Um, I think that's that's a real big mindset change, but um, there's a lot of similarities as well, you know, that sort of getting up, needing to keep going, eating, drinking, making sure you're uh, on top of everything mentally and physically throughout a, a long race um, at a stage race is no different. So yeah, I think there's, there's definitely some similarities that have helped me throughout and maybe that's been a benefit, you know, because I've had a lack of training coming into all of these races. So let, I, I got two last questions for you. And again, appreciate the time. What is your one or two dream race that, that mentally like stokes your training fire like what are you excited to you know put your name in for at some point i'm actually doing uh first 200 mile race in australia called the delirious west in february and that will be my first race in australia ever which for me it will be an incredible feat to go back to my homeland and to run there and to run in a beautiful part of western australia and to be part of the first 200 mile race in Australia, which will be which will be epic. So, I'm looking forward to that, and that'll be something that'll really give me a big push and drive to train over the winter here in France and uh, to try and get there and be competitive. But I'd also like to do the Gobi 400k. Uh, I think there's a real connection there. I've run two races out in the Gobi Desert already, and um, you know had great success out there. And I think. Now, having completed two of the 200s and hopefully the third, I can use that experience and push out there for a result that I think, um, you know, I could uh, I could work for, to, you know, towards the podium, which I'd really like. 
So I finish on on this question frequently, and I, I love hearing everyone's you know personal response. But what advice do you have for someone who is thinking about getting into ultra running? I mean, it seems like ultra running has totally changed your life for the better, and uh, yeah, you've become a New York Times bestseller. You do have an amazing pup who I've I've never seen a dog interact with people like this before. So Gobi's pretty amazing. But what advice do you have, you know, for someone thinking about taking the leap that might be intimidated to run beyond that marathon distance? Uh, that's a good question because you know I I'm I'm kind of unique where I have this hugely competitive side and. Uh, that's what sort of drives me on in, in life in general and at these races. But uh, from the running aspect of it, I'm not like the majority of runners who love to run for the sake of running. And my wife is this person who loves to get out and go running every day. And for me, it can be a little bit of a chore. But for me, I have this uh, need and want to drive myself to be the best that I can. And ultra running has been this facet that uh, I've found that's been perfect for me. And uh, I've played sport to a high level of golf, cricket, and uh, field hockey throughout my life. But, um, you know, besides golf, I mean, those other two require a full team around you. And uh, running's been that thing that's got me back to being able to push myself and to be able to learn from myself and to be able to make myself a better person. And uh, each and every one of these races, you go away and you find out something about yourself and you find out how to be a better person and you, you find strength within yourself. And, uh, that for me is the probably the thing that brings me back every time to do a race. Um, when I played golf, if I smoked the drive and it went for you know a, a huge distance, that got me back another week. Whereas these races, um, there's more to it, and uh, there is an amazing community out there. It's an amazing support network, and uh, you know, for anyone that wants to come and do it, uh, just just do it. You know, it's it is it's an incredible incredible thing to be involved with it's funny you're the first person to ever connect um the mental side of golf with ultra running and <laughs> i i wrote about it i don't think i didn't think anyone had ever like made that connection but i i tap into a lot of my um previous athletic um endeavors as as a, a golfer in the mental side of golfing I mean, you must tap into that similar it's almost like the positive visualization techniques right i mean yeah and, and golf's that incredible sport where if you uh if you haven't got things worked out mentally it doesn't matter what the rest of your body's doing it's the ball's not going exactly where you want it to go and uh, that strength and determination and that uh positiveness and and mindset actually to bring into running is is huge and i think i'm actually a pretty average runner it's just the mindset and my ability to push on when things suck is is where I gain places and I do well. So I'm I'm kind of the runner that actually when everyone else is having a bad day, I seem to have a good day. You know, that's that's how I get my results and, and I'm okay with that because I learn something about myself when I when I achieve that. That's awesome. Dion, thank you for taking so much time and for the listeners background, never bet Dion on anything. Cause this guy talk about competitive don't don't place a bet with Dion um, thank you for taking so much time and where can people follow you on social media and where can they pick up finding Gobi 
we are on social media at Finding Gobi, F-I-N-D-I-N-G-G-O-B-I. And uh, the book's available, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, it's in 20 languages around the world. Um, so, yeah, I hope uh, hope everyone enjoys our amazing true story and incredible journey as well of Finding Gobi. I appreciate all your time. Hopefully I get to meet you out in Moab. And feel free to reach out. If you need anything, let me know. I'd be happy to help out. And thank you. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much, Rob. And uh, really look forward to seeing you out in, in Moab. You're going to crush it. And that's episode 62. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Again, big thank you to Dion for taking all that time. Best of luck to him during Moab. I'll get to see him out there and, and meet him in person. So again, I'll have a big race recap either in the next episode or the following episode. I might drop a, uh, a bonus episode to see how things are going later this week. But all my focus is on Moab. Big thank you to the Patreon supporters. You guys helped make this all work. And uh, I enjoy the closed Facebook group conversations we had. Get active this week. It's the Training for Ultra Challenge 2. It's on Strava. Definitely check it out if you get a chance. Big thank you to the show sponsors. Hammer Nutrition. Supper Best Beer. Destination Trail. And our new big one, Exoskin. So Exoskin, feel free to use my promo code. T, the number four, and you, 20, and you'll save 20% off your order, which is really awesome, great new products that they have out there, and I'll be wearing them myself during Moab. Have a great week, and uh, yeah, thanks again for your support, guys. See ya.